Uh, we're in uh, John chapter 6, and uh, I'd encourage you to fasten your seatbelt this morning and next Sunday, as these are difficult verses for many people, I'm going to do my best to explain them as plainly and uh, clearly as I can. This is the word of the living God to us. In fact, these are the direct words of Jesus to us, and uh, they are written for our good and our benefit, so I trust that he will use them to that end. I am reading from the New American Standard Bible. There's an outline, by the way, in your bulletin. There are printed messages, and those are at both exits and online, and the audio are online as well. Jesus said to them, verse 35 of John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up. On the last day. Although it sounds heretical to ask the question, have you ever wondered whether Jesus failed in his mission? Uh, his mission, he said, was to seek and to save the lost. And yet, when Jesus left this earth, there were mostly lost people in Israel. And who knows, the rest of the world population at that time was basically lost. After 2,000 years of church history, we know there are still thousands of people groups, that is, language and cultural groups, that have no witness in their native language. And even among those who do, the majority of the world's population is unbelieving and and so you have to wonder sometimes, well, did Jesus somehow fail? Or the more deep and broad question, uh, has God's purpose failed? Now, I would hesitate to even raise the question at all, except that uh, an inspired apostle by the name of Paul raises that very question in Romans chapter 9, in light of the fact that the Jews were widespread in Paul's day, as they still are, rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. Paul raises the question there in Romans 9, well, has God's purpose failed? Have his promises to Israel failed somehow? And uh, he answers that, of course, God's purposes have not failed because God never determined to save all of Israel, but only an elect remnant in Israel that God determined to save. And also, Paul points out in Romans 9, the salvation of that chosen group did not depend on their fallen will, 
but rather on the sovereign working of God. And that's why he says in Romans 9.16, So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, that, that is God's purpose, isn't hanging in the balance with people who decide, or the man who runs with human effort, but rather on God who has mercy. And as he goes on to point out, as difficult as it may be for us to get our brain around, God does not have mercy on all. He says in Romans 9.18, just two verses later, So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And Paul shows that God's purpose of glorifying himself by saving his elect and by judging the wicked uh, will not, in any sense, ever fail. That's impossible. Now, that is essentially Jesus' point in the verses that we read here. Uh, we have to understand the context of the verses that we're studying this morning. Going back, you'll recall that in verse 30, the people who had eaten the miraculous miracle of the loaves and the fish come to Jesus and they want him to do a greater sign so they say that we may believe in you. It's an incredible question. You just scratch your head saying, what? I mean, what more do you need? But they want Jesus to go one up on Moses, as verse 31 makes clear. They, they want him to top the miracle of the manna. And uh, Jesus corrects their impudent demand in verse 32 by pointing out that it was the Father and not Moses who gave them the manna. And the bread that God is now giving is not just temporary bread that met the, the need of Israel for a few years in the wilderness, but God is now giving the bread of life, the bread that will satisfy the needs of the world, uh, satisfy their soul. And uh, that's in verse 33. And then these Jews, I think, were still focused on the temporal. They, they wanted a meal ticket. They wanted bread that would feed them for the rest of their lives. And so in verse 34, they asked Jesus to give them this bread. And Jesus replies in verse 35, by offering himself as the bread of life, who satisfies the deepest needs of every person who will come to him and believe in him. We looked briefly at that, <clears throat> at that verse last week. Uh, but then, verse 36, even though they had seen Jesus, they had seen his miracles, they had heard his, his amazing teaching, yet, verse 36, Jesus knows their hearts and says, you still do not believe in me. Now, that's the context then for Jesus' words in verses 37 to 40, where Jesus takes comfort in the sovereignty of God in light of widespread rejection of him and his message. Uh, he um, is making the point here that those who reject God's uh, plan, those who reject the gospel, do not in any way thwart the sovereign plan of God. That's, I believe, what Jesus is getting across here in these verses. Uh, one other thing to note, and you have to jump down toward the end of the chapter. I trust you, you are reading 
John as we go through this. But at the end of the chapter, there are a number of his professed disciples. Disciples. They had begun to follow him. But after Jesus gives this extended discourse on the bread of life, after he talks about the fact that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, which we'll look at next time in verse 44, and he repeats that down in verse 65, we read that a number of his disciples turned away from him. They said, this is a hard saying. We just can't handle this, and we're out of here. And they left. And the point is, if Jesus, again, had been trying to build a large following, he easily, on a human plane, could have been discouraged by these results to see people who had professed faith in him to be walking away. But Jesus' focus was on the Father's will and on doing that will, as we see in verse 38. And we have to understand this. There is nothing more certain in the entire universe than that the Father will accomplish His will. God will accomplish His purpose. That's a given. And that purpose centers on the fact that He has given a large number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to His Son, and, that, um, and, and that's Revelation 5.9, and paraphrasing Isaiah 53, that Jesus will see the result of the anguish of his soul because he poured out himself to death and he bore the sin of many. And so when these people reject Christ, even people who would profess to follow Jesus and be his disciples, Jesus is resting in the sovereign plan and purpose of God. That's where his trust uh, was. Now, I'll just point out, as a teacher of God's Word, I have to do the same thing because invariably when I preach on a difficult subject like the one we're going to talk about today, uh, there are people, I hope none of you, but there could be, who say, that's it, I'm out of there, and they leave the church over it. And uh, sadly, they never bother to come talk to me about it, to get things cleared up, to understand where they may be misunderstanding Scripture or anything, they just walk. And uh, the truth is, there are many people who profess to follow Jesus, but they cannot get their, their will in submission to the fact that God is sovereign over salvation. They just don't want to believe that. They want to believe that, you know, if you say that God chose some but not all, and I've had people say this to me, that's not fair. And uh, you don't want God to be fair, believe me. You want God to be gracious. If God were fair, we would all go to hell. All of us. We all deserve it. But that's what they say. God's, that's not fair. And if I don't teach what they want to hear, they leave. Uh, uh, they want to believe that God wills to save every person, but now the decision is up to man and his free will. And so man casts the deciding vote. God has willed to save all, but all do not will to be saved. And so uh, God can't really override man's free will, and so God is in heaven 
wringing his hands, saying, I wish I could save them all, but that free will gets in the way, and uh, I'm glad a few choose to, to follow me, but God's hands are tied. Uh, and so they make the success of God's eternal purpose hang on the supposed free will of fallen sinners who are rebels against God. Now, I believe that Jesus is soundly refuting that common error in our text and in the text we'll look at next week. Um, God's sovereign plan to glorify his son by giving him a chosen bride and elect people is not hanging on the the rebellious fallen will of sinners. It's resting on God's purpose to save and his power to save. And you see, if sinners have a part in it, even by supposedly casting the deciding vote, then they have a grounds to take pride and to boast and say, well, you know, it was my choice. I, I decided, yep, I'm smart. And, of course, Paul refutes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But he also refutes it in Ephesians chapter 1, where he makes the point that God chose us. He chose to save us before the foundation of the world. So he says in verse 6, Ephesians 1, that we would be to the praise of the glory of his grace, which is undeserved favor. And he goes on and says how God predestined us according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. See how everything depends not on the will of man, but the will of God. And he did it to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That's the point of salvation, that those who are saved would bow down and say, God gets all the glory because I was a rebel and God laid hold on me when I was never thinking of choosing him. And that's why I'm saved. And let me say this too, by the way. If you believe that God cannot override human free will, then you should stop praying for the salvation of the elect or of the lost, I should say. Why pray? God's in heaven saying, yeah, I'd like to save them, but I can't. See, so there's no point in praying for the lost if God can't save them. And there's no point in praying for the repentance of stubborn believers if God can't grant repentance. You see, God is powerful in that way. He doesn't always choose the way I wish, but he can do it. And so I pray and I hope you do, too. Now, I know this is hard to get our finite minds around, but you have to hold on to two things in this discussion. The one is God's sovereignty over our salvation, and the other is that we are completely responsible for our sin and rebellion if we're lost. That seems contradictory, but the Bible presents them both right in the same context often. For example, and I could give you many examples if we had time, but one God determined before the foundation of the world to put Jesus on the cross to bear our sin. That's very clear. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And yet, the evil people that put Jesus on the cross are responsible for that horrible sin, and they will be judged for it. 
Both are true. So we're coming here then to a section where we have to keep in mind God is sovereign and God has determined to prepare a bride for his son and give that bride to him as a gift. And yet, at the same time, we're all responsible to respond rightly to the truth. And sinners are both invited and commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. So you hold those in tension. Um, And also remember, this is a part of God's inspired word. And although you might not like it, Jesus himself spoke these words, and he did it for one reason. Therefore, your spiritual upbuilding. And if you dodge this truth, or if you try to explain it away, or something, you'll be spiritually crippled. Because this is for your spiritual growth and health. So, I present it in that way. Uh, The point that Jesus is making here, as I grapple with it, is this. That his mission to save and to keep all whom the Father has given him, will certainly succeed. And that's very good news. His mission to save and to keep all whom the Father has given him will certainly succeed. Now, let me just quickly give you an overview. In verse 35, Christ offers eternal life to all. I'm the bread of life. Here I am. Come, eat. Okay, there's human responsibility. But verse 36, not all believe. But in verse 37, all those whom God has given to Jesus will come to him. And then the rest of verse 37 down through verse 40, Jesus promises that he will save them and he will keep them for all eternity. So let's work through it in a little more detail. First of all, in verse 35, Christ offers himself as the living bread that gives eternal life to all who believe in him. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And Leon Morris in his commentary points out, that's not just an abstract statement. That's an invitation. That is an invitation to every person. Here's the bread that will give you life, that will sustain you, Come and eat. Come and eat. Feed on Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, that is just an astounding claim. If any mere man said that, you'd go, this guy's nutty. I mean, he's crazy. But Jesus can make that claim and back it up and has for 2,000 years with millions of followers who have said, Amen, Amen, Jesus satisfies my soul when I come to him and when I feed on him. And it is a true claim. And if you have never come to Jesus, that's an invitation for you this morning. Come and feed on Jesus. Now, it's really important that I say this. The doctrine of election, which we're going to plunge into in verse 37, in no way hinders or restricts the free offer of the gospel to every soul on earth. Those are not contradictory. They might be to our mind, but the Bible is clear. We saw it in John 3.16. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. 
whoever. And I love the way the Bible, this is almost the last verse in the Bible, not quite, but just about. Revelation 22:17 gives this open invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes, notice there, the one who wishes, take the water of life without cost. And as far as I know, the Bible never says, well, if you're one of the elect, come. It doesn't say that. It says, are you thirsty? Come. It's free. Drink. Are you hungry? Come. It's free. Fill up. Eat. That's the invitation that Jesus gives and that we give to every hungry soul that is there. But, when Jesus gave this invitation, there's a sad truth, and that's in verse 36. And that is, people are so hopelessly lost in sin that they're going to reject even the best reasons to believe in Christ. Uh, And let me add, even religious Morally upright people are so hopelessly lost in sin that they are going to reject even the best reasons to believe in Christ. Here you've got Jesus speaking to religious Jews. I mean, these people were morally upright. They were at the temple all the time. They did all the rituals. They did all the the cleansings. They kept the Sabbath fastidiously. These were good people. And yet, here they've seen Jesus do a mighty miracle. He provides bread for 20,000 people from a little lunch. They've watched Him heal the sick. They've heard His teaching. And they walk away from it. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? Jesus says in verse 36, I said to you that you have seen Me, and yet do not believe. Well, as we've seen in our study of John, people do not reject Christ because they lack solid evidence to believe in Christ. Um, Sometimes you'll hear a skeptic say, well, just show me a miracle and I'll believe. Nonsense. They would not believe. And the reason, as we saw in chapter 3, is because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They love sin. And therefore, they don't want to come to the light and have their deeds exposed And so they reject Christ. Or the Bible uses another analogy in Ephesians 2. It says people are spiritually dead in their transgressions and sins. And uh, they they can't understand spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The reason is that Satan has blinded their eyes so they don't see the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. And so people are spiritually incapable of responding to Jesus Himself when He does miracles in front of them. They they can't get it. In John chapter 8 and verse 43, we'll see Jesus there. He asked the unbelieving Jews, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? And He never asks a question for information. He knows. They don't know. And so He answers His own question. It is because you cannot hear my word. They did not have the spiritual capacity or ability to hear what Jesus was saying. He means 
here in the way to respond in faith. And that's why he will say in the text we'll look at next week in John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he repeats that same truth down in verse 65. And you'll notice that he doesn't say no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He uses a, a Greek verb, dunamai, that means power. No one is able, no one has the power to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It depends on God working. And so because of sin, it is impossible for any sinner to, to see the truth because he's blind, to hear the truth because he's deaf, to respond to the truth because he's dead spiritually. Uh, Charles Wesley put it in his great hymn. He says, before Christ sends a quickening ray, quickening means life-giving, he says um, that I was fast bound in sin in nature's night. Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, people do not come to Christ because it seems to them a good idea. It never does seem a good idea to natural man. Apart from a divine work in their souls, men cannot, or men, shall I say, remain contentedly in their sins. And yet, at the same time, we are responsible for our unbelief. Okay? We, we are in sin. We cannot get out of sin, but we are responsible for that sin. And it takes God's grace to get us out. And that leads to how people then can be saved in verse 37a. All whom the Father has given to Jesus, he says, will certainly be saved. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, he's referring here, using theological terms, but it's a term Jesus used. He's referring to the elect, to those whom God has chosen to give to his Son. He chose them before the foundation of the world. And uh, you notice the emphasis here on those whom the Father has given to me. It's in verse 37. It's in verse 39. Uh, Jesus will use it again in chapter 10, verse 29. John uses it in chapter 18, verse 9. But then I want to walk you through five times. Jesus repeats it in John 17 uh, in his prayer uh, right before he goes to the cross. John 17:2. Jesus prays, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. He repeats it twice in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Then again in verse 9. I ask on their behalf. Notice, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And note that the Father has not given everyone in the whole world to Jesus. Jesus distinguishes that and says, I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for the ones you have given me out of the world. They're yours. And they're the ones that I'm going to secure their salvation. And then in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am 
so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, well, how does anyone get around this truth? Because many try. Well, the way they try to get around it is they'll say this. um, The elect whom the Father has given to the Son are those whom God foreknew would believe in Jesus of their own free will. You get that? that? That's how they get around it. Well, God knew who it was who would choose him, and those are the ones he picked. Now, I hope you can see through the flaw of that. Um, in the first place, as we've already seen, no one of their own free will would choose Jesus because the will is not free. The will is bound in sin. And men love darkness, and they don't choose the light. So the Bible is so clear that no one would choose Jesus, just say, hey, that's a great thing. I think I'll do that. That's the one fallacy. The second is that foreknowledge ruse, and it is a ruse, makes man sovereign and God is just following man's cue. In other words, God looked down through history, said, oh, good, Steve's going to choose me. I guess I'll choose Steve. Who's determining the plan of God? I am. I made a good choice. That is standing the Bible on its head. The Bible is clear. God chose me. If he hadn't, I would be out there in sin. Full bore. You can guarantee it. I would. Uh, And so God chose people. John Bunyan has a whole book on John 6.37. It used to be out on the book table. It's called uh, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you have read it. But... In that wonderful little book, Bunyan is amazing. He can write a whole book on a verse, and, uh, and it's good, too. He's got another book on uh, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise called uh, The Acceptable Sacrifice. It's excellent. But anyway, in the book on Come and Welcome to Jesus, he makes the point that Jesus' statement in John 6.37 is unconditional. He doesn't say, all that the Father gives me will come to me, depending on their believing, of course. It's an unconditional statement. All that the Father gives me will, in fact, come to me. And it's going to happen without exception because, as verse 38 shows, it rests on the sovereign will of God, not on the will of man. Um, sometimes this doctrine, and it's a bad title, but it's called irresistible grace. The reason that's a bad label is this. You get the picture. Somebody's kicking and screaming, saying, no, I will not come. I will not come. Yes, you are. And God drags them across the line. That is not the biblical picture at all. But what irresistible grace means is God makes sinners willing to come. No one gets saved unwillingly. Everyone who gets saved willingly chooses Jesus. The question is, why does that stubborn will that is so opposed to Jesus suddenly become willing? God works. God works in a mysterious way in the heart. We see this, for example, in Acts 16, 14. Paul there meets Lydia by the riverside. She's a devout Jew, but Paul is sharing the gospel with her. And as you know, many devout Jews, when they heard the gospel... Went 180 opposite. They, they could not stand the gospel. 
But it says this, Acts 16, 14, And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Isn't that how you got saved? Do you think you opened your own heart? Uh Uh-uh. Your heart was closed. And my heart was closed. The only reason I got saved was God graciously opened my heart to respond to the gospel. It's a God thing. And God gets all the glory for that. And that's the whole point. And so... You believed in Christ because the Holy Spirit of God sovereignly at some point imparted new life to you. He gave you saving faith and repentance. He opened your eyes to say, how could I have been so blind to the beauty of Jesus and what He did for me on the cross? Praise God! And you responded willingly to the message of the Gospel because God was working all things for His sake in your heart. He chose you in love before the foundation of the world to give to His Son. And Jesus is making the claim here, all whom the Father has given me will come to me. What a marvelous thing. They all will come. And if somebody rejects Christ permanently, they weren't given. They weren't given, but they didn't thwart God's plan. That's Jesus' point. No sinner can thwart God's mighty will to accomplish his purpose. And that leads us to the last part, which really is the icing on the cake for us who are believers. And that is, salvation is absolutely and finally secure for all whom the Father has given to Jesus. That's from the middle of verse 37 down to verse 40. And these are just wonderful verses that provide a foundation for our assurance of salvation. And just four things I'd point out briefly here. I can only skim them. First of all, verse 37b, Jesus will keep all whom the Father has given him. He says, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now that phrase has often been understood, even by John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon has seven sermons on John 6:37 that I could find. Um, but uh, they, they understand the last part of that verse to mean Jesus will welcome all who come to him. And that is absolutely a true statement. He welcomed the thief on the cross. He welcomed the chief of sinners who was the persecutor of the church and a blasphemer, the Apostle Paul. He welcomes every sinner who comes to him. He does. But that's not the point of verse 37b. I agree with Don Carson, who argues in its context, what Jesus is saying is he will save all who come to him. The reason they come to him is the father gave them to him. They certainly come. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to kick them out in modern terms. I'm going to keep them. Uh, I, I will not throw them out of heaven. That's what he's saying. There are two reasons for that interpretation. First of all, the Greek verb that it says cast out, <clears throat> ekbalo means to throw them out, in almost every occurrence of that verb, it refers to throwing something out that's already in. For example, in John 9, the man born blind, it says that the Pharisees threw him out of the temple. Well, he was already in the temple. 
But when he wouldn't go along with what they wanted to condemn Jesus, they threw him out of the temple. Or John uses the verb in, in 3 John 10 to refer to Diotrephes, who was kicking people out of the church. And so it's expelling those who are already in. Jesus says, I'm not going to kick out any whom the Father has given me. The second reason for that interpretation is, um, <clears throat> you notice verse 38 begins with the word for. Jesus is going to go on and explain why he's not going to kick any out. And uh, verse 38, 39, and 40 make the point. So the context shows what Jesus is saying is, if you have come in faith to him, he's going to keep you up until eternity. You're in. And he isn't going to kick you out. That's the point. You know, at Christmas, you ever get a gift that you open up and you kind of are at a loss for words because you're going, oh, my goodness, what do I do with this thing? And uh, you're saying, uh, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And you're thinking, who can I unload this on at next year's Christmas party as a white elephant? Because I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Well, the point is, Jesus never gets a white elephant gift. You know, if, if you've come to Christ, then he's going to keep you. Because it says you're one of God's gifts to his son. Now, don't let that go to your head and start strutting around thinking I'm God's gift to the world. You, you are God's gift to his son, okay? And that's a comforting thought, isn't it? God chose you, if you believe in Christ, God chose you and said, Jesus Here is my gift to you. And that's precious to Jesus. He paid for it with his blood, and he's not going to lose it. He's going to keep it. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thought. Then the second point is Jesus will keep all whom the Father has given him because he came down from heaven to do the Father's will. Verse 38, he explains, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus is basing the success of his mission not on the fickle will of fallen sinners who may or may not choose him, but rather on the sovereign will and purpose of God, which Jesus is going to do and he's going to keep. That idea that Jesus came down from heaven, by the way, is a statement of deity. It's in verse 38. It's in, well, it's starting in verse 33. He mentions it in John 6, verse 38, verse 41, verse 42, verse 50, verse 51, and verse 58. I have come down out of heaven. It's repeated over and over so we can kind of get it in our foggy brains. Jesus is not a mere man. Jesus is the eternal God who came down from heaven, took on flesh through the virgin birth, and, uh, he came down to do the Father's will, and that's a certain deal. Because if, if Jesus loses anyone whom the Father gives him, then it shows that either Jesus was incapable of performing the Father's sovereign will, or else he was flagrantly disobedient to that will, and both of those are abhorrent. I mean, those are unthinkable. And so, because Jesus is the sovereign God in human flesh, he came down from heaven to do the will of the Father, it is absolutely certain that of everyone the Father has given him, he will lose nothing. He will not kick anyone out. Now, what is the Father's will? Well, that's in verse 39. The will of the Father who sent Jesus is that of all that he has given him, 
He lose nothing but raise it up in the last day. I'm just paraphrasing the verse. Uh, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. And the last day is a, a phrase unique to the Apostle John. It occurs several times in John. It means this, God's going to keep you until heaven. And once you're in heaven, it's forever. And it's eternal. Uh, Leon Morris again says, This thought is of, the great, is of the greatest comfort to believers. Their assurance is not based on their feeble hold on Christ, but on His sure grip on them. That's great news, isn't it? Now maybe you're wondering, well, wait a minute, what about Judas? Or what about the disciples at the end of John 6 that turn away from Jesus? I mean, how do you explain that? Well, I think you explain that by saying they never truly believed in Jesus. They made a profession, but in John 17:12, Jesus prays with reference to the 12. He says, while I was with them, Father, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Judas was never one of the elect. He was a son of perdition. And that's why he didn't believe. And Jesus told the parable (coughs) of the sower. And he makes it clear there, there are some that sprout up and they look good. But then the sun comes out and beats on them, which is a picture of hardship and they wither and die. They didn't have any roots. And there are others that spring up and they look good, but then the thorns grow up and choke them out and they die. And that's a picture of those who get carried away with riches and the worries of this world. And uh, those people, as I understand it, never truly believed in Christ. They professed to, but they didn't. But those who do believe in Jesus, he says, will never perish. And that comes to the last point, which is a sum-up point in verse 40. To sum up, the will of the Father is that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and Jesus will raise Him up on the last day. I think that's just a summary. Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's, again, a staggering claim, is it not? We saw it back in chapter 5. Jesus says, on the last day, I'm going to raise all the dead. Wow. What mere man can say that? Jesus makes the claim. And he's going to raise you and me from the dead, and we're going to be with him forever and ever in our resurrection bodies at that point. Now, you'll notice that Jesus shifts here in verse 40. Instead of saying, this is the will of my Father, that everyone he has given me uh, that I'll raise up on the last day, he doesn't say that. He goes back to the invitation mode of verse 35. In verse 35, he said, everyone who comes to me and believes in me will have eternal life uh, or will never hunger or thirst. But here, he says, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. Now, to behold implies knowledge. It's a verb that means to look at long enough to observe something. 
You can't believe in a Jesus you don't know anything about. And the Gospel of John was written to tell you who Jesus is. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. So that, believing, you might have life in his name. So, John unfolds for us who Jesus is so that we might believe in him. Um, Let me just quote John Calvin on verse 40, and you're saying, oh, no, here comes a thing on predestination. You know what Calvin says about verse 40? He he calls people who look to predestination, he, he calls it the whirlpool of predestination. And he says, if you're seeking salvation, trying to understand predestination, you're a madman. That's what Calvin says. He had it right. He's saying, if you want salvation, believe in Jesus Christ. Don't get all hung up on what he calls the whirlpool of predestination, but rather believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold Him. See Him for who He is. Believe in Him. And the promise is, you have eternal life. So, that's the invitation that I close with. Now, Let me just close by saying some preachers will not even begin to preach on what I've covered this morning because I've been told this. It's too divisive. It's too controversial. You don't want to go there. Uh, I had another preacher in town tell me, well, isn't all that stuff about predestination just uh, theoretical knowledge that doesn't benefit us? I mean, it's just kind of theology that we discuss in seminary. Uh, I've heard seminary professors say, oh, you never want to preach about predestination if you think there might be an unbeliever there because they don't get it. It's just going to confuse them. Did you notice how contradictory all that is to Jesus? (laughs) I didn't bring this up. Jesus did. I'm just teaching through the text, okay? I didn't write the book. I just try to go through verse by verse and explain it. Jesus brought this up, and guess where he brought it up? With unbelievers. Did you catch that? When unbelievers do not believe in Him, He says, it's because you haven't been given to Me by My Father. Whoa! What's He doing? I think He's trying to scare them. (laughs) Because if you're here this morning, and you have a shadow of a doubt thinking, I might not be one of the elect, I hope you make a beeline to the cross of Christ and believe before you leave the door. It ought to scare you. They think, oh my, I might be left out. God, help. I want to believe in Jesus. So, Jesus used it in that context. Also, it's a comforting doctrine, I hope you've seen, for those of us who do believe. Uh, because it says Jesus is going to keep us until the day uh, of the Lord. And, and we know that we're secure because Jesus will not fail in his mission. Also, I believe that doctrine is the only doctrine, the doctrine of election, that produces true humility. Because if I think I had any part in my salvation, I'm going to boast. My nature will do it. (laughs) I'm a little better than that pagan neighbor of mine. Yep. You can trust me, man. I'll make the right decision. I decided for Jesus. And I'll boast. But I have to say, no, no, no. Uh Uh-uh. I would be lost if he hadn't chosen me. And uh, it's the foundation for our eternal security. And and then you say, well, well, the doctrine of election discourages evangelism. Quite the contrary. 
It encourages evangelism for this reason. If you talk to someone whom the Father gave to the Son and they haven't yet believed, guess what? They will believe. Paul was in Corinth. You know Corinth. That was a rough town. And none other than the Apostle Paul was afraid. He thought, I'm going to get beat up if I keep preaching here. And he's going to leave. And that night the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision and said, Paul, go on speaking. Don't be silent. Don't be afraid. I'll protect you. And then the Lord added this, for I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. God gave them to me. They are mine, but they haven't yet heard the gospel. Paul, you're my agent. Stay here and preach the gospel, and they're going to believe. And so it's a great encouragement to evangelism. And then finally, his words here are a great encouragement to preachers like me who are afraid that if you preach on this, you're going to lose people out of the church. And I hope not, but I've got to preach it anyway because it's in the Bible. And I hope you come and talk to me if, <laughs> if it is a problem, but it's in the Bible. So let's bow in prayer. Dear Lord, these are hard things to grasp, but they are here on the very lips of our Lord Jesus for our spiritual good. So help all my brothers and sisters to grapple with them and to submit to them and to embrace them joyously as Jesus taught them. And if any are here, Lord, who have not believed in Jesus, I pray that you would drive them to the cross this morning, that they would see that they are lost, that they cannot save themselves, but that Jesus is a mighty Savior, that they would see him and be, believe in him today for Jesus' sake. Amen. I, I'm thinking next Sunday night by the